Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books and Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we bring you a conversation of an author who has written an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies. Lara Herb's Arabic Poetics, Aesthetic Experience in Classical Arabic Literature is a delightful and formidable study on the details and development of poetics and aesthetics in medieval Arabic literature. The central theme of this splendid book centers on the emergence of the evocation of wonder as a key aesthetic experience and criterion connected to the beauty and eloquence of speech in medieval Muslim intellectual thought. Written with breathtaking clarity and painstaking elaboration, Herb charts the key literary tropes, categories and strategies, as well as the broader intellectual and theological stakes, such as the question of the Quran's inimitability, invested in how poetry was imagined, experienced and evaluated in this context. The strength of this book lies in the meticulous care with which it walks readers through a complex yet deeply fascinating discursive arcade of thinkers, texts and poetic registers. While focused on the thought of the preeminent 11th century scholar Abdul Qahir al-Jurjani, Arabic poetics presents and explores a panoply of scholars and texts situated at the intersection of religion and literature. Written with sparkling clarity, this book will also make an excellent text to teach in various undergraduate and graduate courses on the Muslim humanities, Arabic, religion and literature, and religious studies more broadly. Here now is my conversation with Professor Lara Harb. Hello, Lara. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. Thank you very much, Lara, for coming on the New Books Network. Uh, as I was saying before we started recording the conversation, uh, thank you for this incredibly splendid, uh, layered uh, text, which uh, I, uh, I'm sure will spark many conversations and will really interest uh, people from multiple fields. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, we have a tradition on the New Books Network, Lara, that our first question is always uh, biographical. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners uh, your, uh, about your intellectual journey. How did you become a scholar? of Arabic literature, and then how did you get to write this particular book? Thank you, Sharali. Uh, it's, uh, I'm glad you liked the book. Um, it's, uh, it just came out, and it's officially coming out on June 25th in the U.S., so I'm still, uh, I'm just beginning to hear reactions uh, on the book, so uh, it uh, makes me very happy that uh, you read it and that you enjoyed it. Um, I uh, studied comparative literature as an undergraduate, and I was always interested in literature and particularly in theory. Um, I loved the theory that I was exposed to then as an undergraduate. And um, I was always fascinated with the idea of understanding how language works, what makes it beautiful and effective, and uh, the multifaceted ways in which communication happens and and the consequent requirements on interpretation. Um, but as an undergraduate, uh, my focus was on European languages, as is quite common in comparative literature departments in the U.S. Uh, so when I started graduate school in Middle East studies, um, 
I was uh, really overjoyed to discover this whole world of theory that was written in Arabic, starting from the 8th, 9th century onward. And uh, I also discovered that its sophistication has been greatly underestimated in modern scholarship, even by scholars I greatly admire. So um, after that, I was hooked. <laughs> I wanted to dig deep into these Arabic texts and understand what's going on. Um, Listening carefully and humbly to what these primary texts have to say, I think, allowed me to see um, patterns that um, I didn't see, uh, you know, spoken about in, in the scholarship. Um, and I say humbly because I, I think we often approach these old texts, at least I did when I was first a graduate student, with a kind of hubris that we know better than them and the, we dismiss things that we don't understand as inconsistencies in the medieval author's logic or rationality. And once I trusted my authors and their incredible intelligence, um, their texts really started opening up to me. And so I wrote my dissertation, and uh, which then um, I developed into this book. Terrific. Uh, so I was wondering if you could perhaps begin with a slightly broader uh, question. I mean, one of the key strengths of this book is that it's incredibly nuanced and layered, and we will go into some of those details in the course of our conversation. But let's begin with a slightly broad question to sort of get listeners, give them a sense of what this book is about. So I was wondering if you could describe um, briefly what you uh, see as the key theme and argument of the book. And especially if you could just talk a bit about this key category that I saw running throughout the book in every chapter of what you call this aesthetic of wonder. Uh, uh, so if you could also describe a bit what uh, uh, this category uh, means to you and how it relates to your broader argument uh, in this book. Yes. So uh, the main argument of the book is that uh, the ability of poetry or any poetic speech, not necessarily rhymed and metered uh, speech, um, the, its ability to allow for an experience of wonder in the listener, I argue, became the foundation of literary evaluation in at least uh, post-10th century Arabic criticism. So in other words, I argue first that a theory of aesthetic experience developed in classical Arabic texts and formed the basis of aesthetic judgments, and that this theory of, in other words, how poetic speech affects the listener um, is uh, defined by an experience of wonder. Now, wonder is a complex notion, and it's not easy to pin down. It kind of has two sides. Uh, on the one hand, it is triggered uh, by uh, a cer a certain things, such as strangeness, the inexplicable, um, something mysterious, obscure, but... What is significant about it is it's not just strangeness and the inexplicable, inexplicable for its own sake, but also that this strangeness and inexplicability provokes a desire to try to clarify and familiarize uh, on the other hand. So, so it's, um, it's a search for an explanation and the ensuing discovery of this explanation that uh, what, what wonder is all about. In Arabic, we have a type of texts dedicated to the wonders of the world, the marvels of the world, like uh, Zakaria al-Qazwini's Ajaib al-Makhluqat, for example, from the 13th century, which deals with the marvelous creations that exist in the external world. 
However, the wonder that I'm talking about here is the result of linguistic expression. So the theory I uncover shows how things that lead to wonder, such as strangeness, obscurity, and, and unexpectedness, can, produce, can be produced through language. And the judgment of poetic quality, in turn, including the arguments for the inimitability of the Qur'an, depended on the ability of linguistic expression or a phrase to convey meaning in a way that is not obvious and requires the listener to take some time to discover, and in a way that is intentionally misleading or uh, resulting in an unexpected discovery. Um, I do want to emphasize that this is not an explicit notion um, in the sources. So they use all kinds of words to describe the effect of poetic speech on the listener, such as splendor or that it moves the soul or that it's pleasing. However, what I try to show is that the underlying mechanism uh, to which they attribute this movement to the soul is one of uh, estranging and discovery. So I hence use the concept of wonder as an umbrella term to describe this aesthetic. Now, much of the book uh, uh, describes and talks about this important shift that you talk about, especially in the earlier chapters from an earlier tradition of Arabic poetry, sort of a pre-11th century, 11th century Gregorian, of course, uh, that privileged uh, truthfulness and accuracy as the sort of criteria for evaluating poetry to a new style that you're talking about uh, now premised on the importance of evoking wonder from the reader. So let's uh, take them up uh, one by one, uh, these two sort of uh, styles or these two sort of paradigms, uh, so to say. So let's begin with the first. Uh, could you talk a bit about the key sort of assumptions or precepts that uh, informed uh, this uh, pre-11th century school of evaluating poetry, this earlier, older tradition of Arabic poetry? What were some of its key features? Yeah, so first I want to clarify the difference between the poetry and the poetics and literary criticism written about the poetry. So the in the early Abbasid period, um, so we're talking about the late 8th century, 9th century Gregorian, um, poets started composing poetry that began to diverge from the conventions of what by then was um, a class, the classical style of the pre-Islamic poets. Uh, this new style of poetry was recognized even at the time already as, as muhdath or modern. Um, and there are several great studies that look at this poetry and how it's different from earlier pre-Islamic poetry. And one of its main distinguishing features uh, is that it's, uh, it deliberately uses rhetorical figures, badia. So uh, what I look at uh, is specifically in this book is, is how critics at the time described and evaluated this poetry. So the, the poetics, the literary criticism, and I'm trying to get at their aesthetic uh, values and criteria for evaluating poetry. And the early criticism from the 9th and 10th century are very much concerned with this new style and how it differs from the old style, and they, they're kind of nostalgic to the, the beauty of this pre-Islamic poetry, which they held up as an ideal. And the, what was ideal to them, the criteria that they always pointed to, uh, the framework that they, uh, that they based their discussions on, were very much, um, uh, very much revolved around the ideas of truthfulness and naturalness. So the old pre-Islamic style was 
was close to the truth, was uh, was spontaneous, natural, whereas the new style of the Abbasid poets was judged as too false, far-fetched, hyperbolic, affected, and forced. Um, and this often had to do, for example, uh, with taking a metaphor too far in a way that leads to contradictions. Um, Maybe we can uh, discuss an example I wanted to point on page 38 in the book um, that uh, uh, clarifies this a little bit. So, um, wait a minute, page 38. Okay. So at the bottom, uh, Qudama bin Jafar, who is a 10th century critic, uh, discusses this poem by uh, this verse by a poet called Ibn Harma. He's from uh, from the eighth century, and so he is unhappy with this verse, uh, which goes as follows: um, Tarahu is describing a, a, a dog. Okay, so it says Tarahu إذا ما أبصر الضيف مقبلا يكلمه من حبه وهو أعجم. So the translation is: You find it the dog. Whenever it sees a guest coming, speaking to him out of love while mute. So Qudama uh, found this uh, verse problematic because it's it ends up with a contradiction that the the dog is both speaking and mute, and the contradiction results from going too far with the figurative language, uh, without qualifying it as figurative. So these are the kinds of concerns um, uh, that we find in this earlier criticism that I'm describing as old school of criticism. It's not accurate on a literal level. Um, and um, and so, so um, as a result, anything that, that is not uh, close and accurate on a literal level is not natural, and it seems it's, they deem it as too affected and too forced. Um, but in fact, this same verse um, later uh, later on, um, critics would cite it precisely because um, positively because it's indirectly uh, conveying the generosity of the host. So the the dog that is being described as speaking while being mute. Um, is uh, it, that describes his uh, familiarity with uh, his master's guests. So he's so familiar with guests visiting his master's home that he doesn't even bark at them or at strangers who come to the home. And thus he's so friendly to them by being mute. Um, and the fact that you, you need to deduce this was something that... Um, was a positive thing for later criticism. While in that period, in the earlier period, 9th and 10th century, in the old criticism, this was uh, viewed as a negative thing and too um, too convoluted, too far from uh, the truth. Now, one of the key uh, categories you discuss as you talk about then the shift that takes place in uh, poetics uh, is uh, uh, what you call takhil or make-believe imagery. And uh, uh, if you could speak a bit about this category, what it means and how does it signal this major paradigm shift, um, uh, if you could talk a bit about that. I, again, I think with the help of a couple of examples, that will be best in terms uh, for the listeners to follow uh, sort of the, 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 the nuances of your argument. 
And I think this might also be a good time uh, for us to introduce uh, the key sort of protagonists of your narrative. And there are a number of uh, thinkers and scholars and texts that, that you talk about, but there is uh, one figure who really uh, does uh, occupy center stage, and that is, of course, Abdul Qahir al-Jurjani. So if you could also talk a bit about who he was and uh, perhaps try to fold him into this conversation about uh, Takhil. Yeah, Abdul Qahir al-Jurjani uh, is uh, an incredible figure. We, know, we don't know very much about him um, historically. Um, he lived most of his life, it seems, or all of his life, actually, in Jurjan, uh, which is uh, in today in Iran. And uh, he, but he was very known, and uh, scholars you know, flocked to him to study uh, with him. Um, but he's and he's mainly famous in biographical dictionaries for being a grammarian. So he wrote lots of books on grammar. But he also wrote two major, major works uh, on what we can describe as literary theory. So the first one is called Asrar al-Balagha, The Secrets of Eloquence. Um, and the second one is Dala'il uh, al-Ajaz, which is on um, the inimitability of the Qur'an. And these two books formed the basis of what later uh, in the following centuries uh, became standardized as uh, a science of eloquence, namely by uh, figures like Sakaki and Khatib al-Qazwini in the 13th century. Uh, but their ideas and the ideas of uh, the science, Ilm al-Balagha, uh, really originate in Jurjani. Of course, he was also influenced by works uh, before him and authors before him and developments in grammar and literary theory before him. But he, he really was able to take things to another level um, <clears throat> and shift the conversation. So um, as we, I was just talking about the old school of criticism and how much of the focus or the framework uh, that they used was based on um, the question of truthfulness and falsehood in poetry. And people who, the framework was so solid that people who wanted to defend uh, the new style of uh, poetry uh, ended up defending the merits of falsehood in poetry versus those who preferred the classical style of the pre-Islamic poet would be pro-truthfulness. So you have uh, people falling into different teams based on their subjective tastes. Uh, Jurjani challenges this whole framework, um, this binary way of thinking about poetry and these old conceptions of truthfulness and falsehood. Um, by shifting, in one of the ways he does challenge that is, is by shifting the discussion to uh, the type of logicality uh, an image necessitates. Uh, this is where takhil or make-believe imagery comes in. So he says it's not a question of whether uh, an image is truthful or not. Uh, rather, it's a question of whether it's rational, aqli, or make-believe. So instead of focusing on how realistic an image is in relation to an external world, he focuses on whether the internal logic of an image is rationally viable or whether it requires one to sus suspend belief, make-believe. So um, on page 51, for example, I discuss a, a verse by Astanaubari, who is a 10th century uh, poet as well, uh, where he compares anemones, these red 
flowers uh, to banners of ruby unfurled on lances of peridot. So ruby, red, uh, red uh, stone, and peridot is a green stone. Um, the image, El Jorgeni argues, is rationally viable, even though the thing that the anemones is compared to is imaginary and does not exist in reality. The, the ruby is unfurled on lances of peridot. But uh, he does not count it as false or kezib. He says this is everything is rational, akli in that image. There's, uh, uh, and it, he wouldn't count it as part of um, falsehood. What is the imagery that he does count as part of falsehood is make-believe imagery, and this is a new category he brings in. Um, and make-believe imagery are kinds of imagery that uh, require you to accept something that is clearly untrue as a truth. Um, and that's, that typically happens when the poet builds an image on a metaphor that he takes literally. So an example of that is uh, on page 55 in the book uh, by none other than Al-Buhturi. Uh, I say none other because he's actually praised for his classical style, uh, even though he was from um, among the Muhtath poets. Um, in, in these couple of verses, he's describing, actually he's praising the Abbasid Caliph al-Mutawakkil, and he's describing him, comparing him to the sun. And then he's saying in the second verse, وَمَا عَيَنُوا شَمْسَيْنِ قَبْلَهُمَا الْتَقَى ضِيَاؤُهُمَا وَثْقًا مِنَ الْغَرْبِ وَالشَّرْقِ so he, he said he appeared like a sun and never before had they seen two suns meeting with equal radiance from west and east. So Jorjani uh, explains that for this image to work, we have to make believe that the person being praised is an actual sun competing with the real sun in radiance. In order for us to be amazed by the sight of two suns in the sky, we allow ourselves to buy into the illusion that the metaphorical sun is a real sun. This rubric of Tahil that Georgiani creates incorporates a, a number of rhetorical figures that came about uh, with, with the Muhtaf style, such as this one, which is called Amaze Tajub. It's actually a rhetorical figure uh, known as Tajub or which means amazement, or tajahul um, al-arif, feigned ignorance. You, you feign ignorance that the, the caliph is not an actual son, uh, is an actual son, sorry, and uh, that you are able to see two suns in the sky. Um, and it incorporates other figures also, uh, such as one described as fantastic etiology, so uh, giving a fantastic reason for a real occurrence. These are all things that were that became popular in the Muhtath style of poetry. And uh, Jurjani was, was already before me, I mean, scholars have pointed out how he legitimizes this way of producing imagery um, that was previously regarded as too far-fetched and too unrealistic. But what un interests me here is really... Um, not so much that Giorgiani discusses such make-believe imagery for the first time, but how he explains its beauty. So the, the beauty of Tahil imagery does not lie in the fact that it's false. So he breaks away from this binary altogether. Uh, rather, it lies in its ability to trick the listener and produce an unexpected meaning. 
um, such as the one we've seen now. We, we, we're kind of tricked. We buy into the idea that the caliph is an actual sun and we see two suns in the sky. So we see this unexpected new image um, that is uh, surprising. This, um, and, and this explanation of, that for the beauty of Tahil imagery um, underlies his discussion of other rhetorical figures as well, not just the make-believe imagery. So, for example, he explains the beauty of paranomasia, tajnis, or punning, um, in, in a similar way, where he says, sim, so paranomasia, tajnis is when you have two similar-sounding words um, repeated in, this, in, in a verse. Uh, and he says that the beauty of this repetition is not just uh, acoustic, but actually, it's not acoustic at all, but it lies in the fact that the repetition creates an expectation of repetition of meaning. The repetition of sound creates an expectation of repetition of meaning. Uh, but then you're surprised to discover a different meaning, an added meaning. Um, this, in the chapter, I go on to show how a lot of the Badia figures in general, the rhetorical figures uh, that... Uh, started to become standardized uh, in treatises uh, during this period, do follow in their structure, inherently in their structure, do follow uh, or create this kind of mechanism of misleading and creating sort of an unexpected meaning, um, tricking the listener into thinking something and then discovering something else and thus uh, evoking, again, an, an experience of discovery and wonder. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, just to, to conclude, then this, this whole, um, instead of truthfulness and naturalness being valued, as in the old school of criticism, and this was a, 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 an aesthetic that inherently prioritized uh, uh, the old the, the poetry of pre-Islamic poets. Now, this new aesthetic uh, was based on the ability of poetry to produce an experience of discovery and wonder. Um, and this, I want to emphasize, is, does not describe only the new style of poetry, but describes poetic language in general, whether it's new style, old style, or the Qur'an. So this was this incorporated was a more comprehensive theory that described how language functions and why uh, why these certain manipulations of language rubadia uh, produce pleasure in the listener. Wonderful. Uh, in the next uh, chapter, Lara, you f f uh, shift focus on the question of how Aristotle's uh, poetics and especially his notion of uh, mimesis or muhakat uh, is uh, translated or approached as uh, simile and metaphor in the uh, Arabic philosophical tradition. Uh, so if you could talk a bit about this uh, translation and how it fit into and sort of further reinforced this uh, aesthetic theory of wonder or takhil that you're talking about, uh, perhaps you could focus on a couple of uh, philosophers in this uh, really rich uh, chapter. We won't be able to go into all of the details, but if you could give listeners a sense of uh, the argument of this chapter and uh, how uh, Aristotle's poetics uh, fit into this uh, uh, larger aesthetic theory of uh, uh, wonder. 
Yeah, the uh, this chapter actually was the beginning of my project. I, I, the whole idea started with this chapter. It ends up being located as chapter two in the book. But interestingly, I mean, we we know you know the Aristotelian texts were translated into Arabic in the ninth and tenth centuries, uh, including the poetics, Aristotle's poetics, um, and the. Philosophers uh, writing in Arabic uh, after Islam were interested in the poetics, uh, particularly because they were they received it, they inherited uh, it uh, uh, in a classification with, from late antiquity that regarded the poetics and the rhetoric as part of Aristotle's organon, his his works on logic. So, philosophers like Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina were thought that the rhetoric and the poetics, like in late antiquity, were, were forms of uh, attaining knowledge through logical reasoning. Um, the interesting thing about this encounter is that we, we know how the Arabic interpretation of the poetics is, uh, is completely different from what Aristotle uh, was really doing in, in the poetics. But it's also very enlightening. I mean, the way they choose to interpret Aristotle uh, is, I think, it forces them to explain certain things explicitly in a way that other authors, other critics didn't have to um, explain certain assumptions about literary quality and literary, the effect of, lit, uh, of poetic speech that uh, people uh, like Giorgiani didn't have to explain explicitly. So when I started looking at the uh, commentaries on Aristotle's poetics by the philosophers, I uh, noticed that wonder was a big, big notion that was that kept, kept coming up. And so that was actually my starting point. And then I, I went to look at other texts and I started seeing that wonder and this concept of discovery is all over the place. Uh, also in works on poetic criticism and in works on the inimitability of the Quran. Um, so the, what the Arab philosophers, so let's, what, how does wonder come into play in, in philosophy and the philosophical interpretations of uh, Aristotle's poetics? So they, they were faced, because they received the poetics and rhetoric as part of logic, uh, they were faced with the predicament of making sense of poetic speech as a type of syllogism. Um, just like in late antiquity, the solution in late antiquity was very much linked with truth and falsehood. So um, what defines a poetic syllogism uh, for them was the falsehood of its premises and hence its conclusion. Hmm. However, uh, a new solution to this problem develops in Arabic philosophy. Instead of defining the poetic syllogism by its falsehood, they started defining it um, as make-believe, takhil. So while Al-Farabi still seems to associate poeticity with falsehood, Ibn Sina categorically denies any role to truth and falsehood um, for the definition of uh, poetic speech. Uh, rather, it is the, it's make-believe quality that defines it. Um, and on top of that, the make-believe conclusion that uh, one uh, reaches as a result of a, a poetic syllogism, they explain is one that evokes 
uh, an experience of wonder. Does, there's a shift away from truth and false, this truth and falsehood binary in philosophy uh, that is similar to the one that we've seen in poetic criticism. So mimesis is an interesting and complicated question that I don't uh, solve completely in this uh, in, in this book. Um, but it's also very telling how the Arab philosophers or philosophers writing in Arabic, there were you know, Ibn Sina was not uh, ethnically Arab. Um, they, uh, how they understood mimesis. So mimesis for Aristotle meant uh, the representation of life through uh, enactment on stage uh, of events. I mean, he's talking about uh, Greek tragedy and epic poetry, um, mainly Greek tragedy and, and drama. So this didn't quite make sense in the Arabic context, yet the philosophers believe that whatever Aristotle is saying in the poetics is universally applicable, like the rest of his um, discussions in, in the organon. And so they interpreted mimesis, for the most part, not really as an imitation or mimicking, as uh, Aristotle is thinking of it, but as likening or tashbih. It's translated as such, and they interpret it as such. Mm. And um, Tashbih is one of the central figures, the rhetorical figures in Arabic poetry, and, and is also the basis of metaphor, which is another huge figure discussed in Arabic, po in Arabic criticism. Um, conveniently, Tashbih translates well into a syllogism. So one of the examples that Ibn Sina gives is uh, when one says so-and-so is a moon to describe a beautiful person. He explains one reasons, like a syllogism, uh, he is beautiful, everyone beautiful is a moon, therefore he is a moon. But he explains this conclusion is not a real one, but a make-believe one. We pretend to accept the premise that everyone beautiful is a moon and therefore accept the conclusion that so-and-so is a moon. This type of make-believe conclusion that results from a poetic from poetic premises is described by Ibn Sina as takhil. This is what takhil means for the philosophers. The notion of of takhil um, here with the philosophers has much overlap with Georgiani's concept of takhil in the sense that it describes a certain kind of pretending to accept something untrue as literally true in, in order for a poetic image to work. However, for Giorgiani, this is a rubric that describes a specific set of rhetorical figures, not all poetic speech. For the philosophers, it is a description of all poetic speech, and it has the technical meaning of uh, describing the kind of acknowledgement uh, one gives to a poetic syllogism. Um, however, in both cases, the mechanism of discovering the meaning is key to the ecstatic experience of poetic speech. So, uh, in fact, in philosophy, it is quite explicitly associated, as I said, with, with wonder. So we see a, a nice, I mean, this is something that um, I think is, is uh, important. A lot of times these fields are studied completely separately. So you have amazing work on philosophy done by philosophers and an amazing work done on literary criticism done by <laughs> People working on on, uh, uh, on literary criticism, 
but the simil- and the, the philosophers are often seen as kind of exceptional or they, they don't fit into the regular um, approaches to literary criticism. While their approach is definitely unique and it's provoked by Aristotle's poetics uh, and the way they received it, the, the aesthetic assumptions in both cases uh, I try to show are exactly the same. Perfect. Um, so in the next uh, chapter, you talk about what you call uh, this uh, Bayani approach to evaluating uh, poetry. And one thing I should really mention uh, b- before we talk about that chapter is that one of the great things about this book is sort of incredible uh, translation work that you've done in terms of uh, a number of different uh, uh, sort of uh, places where you uh, translate some very difficult material. And I think hence it will also be a, a great pleasure to teach uh, in undergraduate and graduate courses. So I just wanted to make sure that listeners uh, do know about the incredible translation work that also is part of the uh, of the book. And then you sort of... Uh, uh, really unpack these different ingredients of uh, of uh, this uh, uh, aesthetic uh, theory of wonder uh, that go into it. So, um, so again, this Bayani approach. You talk about how it is uh, uh, elaborated by Al Jurjani, and you especially in this chapter focus on uh, the uh, purposes and goals of similes and uh, how and what represented a successful simile, etc. I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners about uh, this uh, chapter, maybe again with a couple of examples uh, so that our listeners can also sort of tune in to uh, this discussion around similes and this Bayani approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, This was uh, one of my favorite chapters uh, to write and explore and research. Um, It might not be as uh, fun to read, (laughs) and I'll explain why uh, in a bit, but um, really, the the crux of this theory, I think, develops in their discussions of uh, of simile, and I think in the in the approach which I'm describing as as Bayani. So, besides this poetic criticism which we already talked about, which kind of focuses on the new style and badia, the use of rhetorical figures, and then you have the strand uh, that comes from philosophy. Um, there was another area where discussions of poeticity uh, were developing, going back to Jahiz in the ninth century. And, and that is with the concept of bayan. So bayan, which could mean simply clarity, uh, I emphasize in chapter three, is really about uh, clari- the process of clarification, not clarity in and of itself. Thus, Rahid is interested uh, in all kinds of mechanisms of communicating, elucidating meaning, whether in speech, writing, gesturing, counting, or God's creations. But eventually, Bayan focuses on language and speech and analyzes how language can elucidate, how it elucidates and how it moves one from obscurity to clarity in an eloquent and beautiful way. In other words... How can language produce an experience of discovery? This approach to language, I believe, was fundamental in producing some of the most sophisticated theories of aesthetic experience. Uh, And one of the main linguistic units they focus on uh, in their elaborations of this theory of bayan or discovery is simile, so tashbih, comparing one thing 
to another. You can see traces of this thinking already prior to Giorgiani, but uh, Giorgiani in his Asrar al-Balagha provides some very interesting general observations about human nature that kind of help explain why poetry can be moving. And uh, the main features of these observations are, I go through that in detail in the chapter, of course, but the main features of these observations are one that discovery is pleasurable. So going through, allowing your reader or listener to go through an experience of discovery is something pleasing. And second is that the more effort is required to discover meaning, the more intense the pleasure and wonder one experiences. He goes on to describe the various aspects of simile then that can slow down basically the experience of discovery and hence enhance the aesthetic experience of wonder. These include such things as strangeness, having the two things compared be far apart and unlikely to have a similarity. And interestingly, things like details, adding details and rarity. So, um, for example, on page uh, 148, um, he discusses uh, the, the merits of one verse by Umr al-Qais, the famous pre-Islamic poet, in which he compares um, his spear. So he says, uh, I'll read it, جَمَعْتُ رُدَيْنِيًّا كَأَنَّا سِنَانَهُ سَنَا لَهَبٍ لَمْ يَتَّصِلْ بِدُخَانِهِ so I, I grabbed a Rudaini spear whose arrowhead was like the blaze of a flame untouched by smoke. Hmm. He says that this detail of the flame being untouched by smoke forces one uh, to slow down and contemplate why this, uh, why did the poet add this unusual detail? And he says this is superior to another image that he discusses where uh, a poet compares his sword to a blazing flame without adding any detail. So this is a, a pretty typical image, but this addition of detail um, aids the slowing down, this process of slowing down and forcing one to contemplate and then kind of uh, see this image um, that the poet wants, wants to convey. Um, so... Giorgiani's ideas then in, in his two main books are reorganized and reformalized by later authors. Um, I might have already said this, but I mean, it, it culminates in the 13th century with a standardized uh, science of Balagha, Ilm al-Balagha, which it, it really, uh, the, the foundations of this uh, science start with uh, As-Sakaki's Miftah al-Uloom and then Al-Qazwini's commentary on it and then um, and then you have commentaries up to the 20th century uh, on uh, on this work. So it's a, it's, it's a very a standard, it becomes a discipline. Um, and this Ilm al-Balagha, the science is then divided into three branches, uh, one of which is Ilm al-Bayan, the science of elucidation, I, I describe it. Um, and the first section in this branch is always devoted to simile. And uh, authors like Isakaki and Al-Khatib Al-Qazwini organize and distill the various aspects of simile that 
Georgiani discusses that intensify the resulting experience of wonder. So they go into the details of the different types of things that can be compared and the types of comparisons uh, that can be made, whether they're sensory, intellected, imaginary. Um, and, and this kind of, this is why I said this chapter might be, um, might be annoying for some people to read, uh, because it does go into the details, or rather the, the actual material primary sources sometimes are, are tedious to read because they, it's a taxonomy of all these different types of uh, things that can be used in a, in a simile. However, with the backdrop of an aesthetic theory of wonder, it becomes clear that this taxonomic exercise uh, addresses ways of int intensifying the effects of simile. So without having this uh, kind of unspoken assumption there, uh, presumably they didn't need to explain this to their audiences. This was obvious that this was the goal. But it's not obvious to us now reading this material a thousand years later. Um, but thinking of it with that backdrop in mind, then the purpose of this taxonomy becomes uh, much more interesting. Uh, no, it was actually not annoying at all. It was that details <laughs> are precisely what made this chapter so delightful. It's uh, incredible details. Uh, and the next chapter, you focus on uh, other features of this uh, of this uh, science of uh, eloquence, almul uh, balagha, and this aesthetic theory. You know, wonder. Uh, and you talk about multiple features. Let's perhaps focus on a couple. Uh, the importance of uh, metaphor or istiara and uh, metonymy or kinaya uh, in the formulation of this aesthetic theory. So uh, perhaps again, if you could just take some examples or uh, just uh, some key features of how these two um, uh, sort of uh, 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 tools or concepts uh, uh, fit into this uh, aesthetic theory of Brenda. Yeah. So ultimately, Bayan, uh which I discussed in relation to simile in the previous chapter, was really a question about um, what makes one way of expressing something more eloquent than another. So Giorgiani and later Sakaki and Al Khatib Al Qazwini emphasized that words used explicitly to signify whatever convention has made that sound grouping refer to lexically cannot be made more or less eloquent. So the proper choice of words simply reflects a poet's knowledge of the lexicon. It doesn't reflect his, his skill. Um, however, where a poet can exhibit his poetic skill is when he uses words to signify something other than their lexical meaning. In other words, when he uses uh, them figuratively or implicitly through metaphor or uh, metonymy. Kinaya, um, which doesn't translate perfectly as metonymy, but um, it, it's good enough. <laughs> All these terms are very, you know, one has to take, the translation of these terms one has to take with a grain of salt because they have very specific definitions in the Arabic tradition that don't necessarily uh, fit perfectly with our impressions of what these figures uh, are in today. So... Um, from the listener's perspective, uh, receiving information explicitly does not permit one to go through an experience of discovery, whereas if a poet conveys an idea indirectly through metaphor or metonymy, 
you do have to go through a process of contemplation and discovery, which is precisely what renders such forms of speech more pleasurable and hence more eloquent. Um, the same principles that govern the beauty of simile apply to metaphor and metonymy. Uh, the more, here again, the more effort is required to reach the intended meaning and the more steps one has to go through to discover it, the better. Diane, therefore, which these figures are classified under is the science of, in, in the science of eloquence, is not about clarity, which can be misleading with a term like Diane, but it's about the process of making the meaning manifest and its discovery. So uh, things like metaphor and metonymy, in other words, what I'm trying to say, are inherently, by definition, more eloquent than saying something um, in a straight, straightforward way. Uh, the next chapter will especially interest, I mean, all the chapters, of course, will interest, but especially, you know, uh, 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 scholars of Islam in which you talk about the relationship between this aesthetic of wonder and arguments about the inimitability of uh, the Quran. And uh, uh, so if you could uh, perhaps uh, connect the two, uh, and you especially focus on uh, the importance of uh, sentence uh, construction or novum as an important part of the aesthetic theory that then went into arguments about the Quran's inimitability and how it was explained and affirmed. So if you could perhaps briefly talk about the argument of that chapter and how inimitability of the Quran became central to this uh, aesthetic theory of wonder. Yes, so another area of inquiry uh, into literary beauty, besides, as we've seen now, poetic criticism, philosophy, uh, Bayan, which focuses on metaphor, uh, simile, and metonymy. Um, another approach is found in treatises on the miraculousness or the inimitability of the Quran. And these treatises bring in this other linguistic element, as you mentioned. So, um, which is sentence construction or nullism. Um, and in fact, nothing is where really is is really what is inimitable about the Quran, uh, according to um, medieval scholars. Now, why? So I I, I should say here I am not interested in uh, proving the inimitability of the Quran, or you know, uh, trying to convince you that the Quran is inimitable or not. Uh, I'm interested in understanding their logic for explaining what makes the Quran so beautiful um, and and eloquent and wonder-evoking. And here again, the logic is similar to the logic we see them uh, use to explain the beauty of rhetorical figures, the beauty of simile, the beauty of metaphor and metonymy. That is, um, how a sentence is constructed syntactically can also influence how meaning is conveyed and discovered. And this is not a question of correct usage of syntax. Anyone who knows Arabic can use the language correctly. That's not, that doesn't show poetic skill <laughs> or eloquence. Rather, it's a question of how manipulations of sentence structures can influence and convey meaning in a way that is indirect and implicit, that 
requires the listener then to contemplate and discover. This can be achieved through uh, various um, ways, uh, and uh, it, it becomes the purview of what uh, the branch of Ilm al-Balagha known as Ilm al-Ma'ani, the science of conveying meanings. Um, it could be, I mean, things like changing word order um, can influence exactly the nuance of the meaning that you want to convey. Ellipsis has uh, the use of something as, as seemingly insignificant as the use of a definite article or, or not using it, or the use of the conjunction and uh, or not using it, and many other uh, techniques that Jujani discusses in his Ajaz al-Quran um, and later becomes Ilm al-Ma'ani. Um, I th- this is the hardest uh, thing to translate into English because it does depend on the Arabic language and the use of, of syntax in Arabic. But one uh, example that I think does show a little bit what, what they're talking about when it comes to sentence construction is uh, I discuss on page 221, um, which is a verse uh, verse 100 in, in Surah 6, uh, Surah Al-Anam, <clears throat> uh, which says, So it means they made the jinn partners of God. And so what is uh, interesting about this, uh, the Jorjani and later uh, commentators discuss, is is the placement of the word um, uh, partners, shuraka. Jalu lillahi shuraka'a al jinna. So the fact that it's placed first before al jinn. They explain, emphasizes the fact that the problem is not the fact that they made partners of God, they made the jinn partners of God, rather the fact that they made partners to God in any case, including the jinn. So if you were uh, to convey this meaning explicitly, you would have to say there should not be any partners to God, whether among the jinn or otherwise. But Al-Jurjani uh, explains that just this placement of the word shuraka first before al-jinn conveys this whole sense of what is so problematic is anyway uh, having giving God any partners. And then he specifies that they happened to give him the jinn as partners. This is a simple example uh, of how uh, word order um, or as an example of manipulation of sentence structure can uh, add meaning to, to, uh, to, to what you're saying in, in an indirect way. At the very end, uh, I conclude the chapter with a discussion that we find in a Sakakis Miftah al-Uloom. Uh, where he um, analyzes one verse, one short phrase, um, 
on page 249 uh, in the Quran, Quran uh, Surah 19, uh, verse 4, uh, this is uh, from the Quran's narration of the Prophet uh, Zechariah pleading to God in his old age that he became old. And the Sakaki explains that, I mean, the, the meaning, the basic meaning is simply that I became old. Inni wahana al-azmu minni. But the, he, he details, and I discuss this in the book, the, that the way this sentence is structured is eight degrees of eloquence more elevated than the basic meaning of I've just become old. I won't go into the details of what these are, but uh, it gives you the, the general, uh, the underlying aesthetic of these different layers of uh, the, of eloquence is basically it's things are um, being removed from being explicit. So you need to, as a reader, you're not given the answer. You're not given the meaning. You're not handed the meaning uh, in a straightforward way. You have to stop and contemplate and eventually discover the meaning. And this is what is so wonder-evoking and aesthetically pleasing about it. Um, um, yeah, that's the, I can stop there. <laughs> no, please continue if you wanted to close the thought. Sorry. Okay, they're very, I mean, they also discuss uh, very sophisticated ways uh, of how uh, constructing sentences in ways that are unexpected also, given the the situation or the, the context or the, the person you're speaking to, that result in things like wit and sarcasm um, through language. And um, it's very, very interesting theories that are hard to express in in translation because many of them are uh, specific to Arabic syntactical constructions. But one can imagine what that would mean in Arabic and one can appreciate then what is maybe what gets lost when the Quran is translated. Now, as we come to the uh, end of our time, Alara, I was wondering if you could perhaps end uh, by uh, uh, taking a step back and talking a bit about sort of the broader uh, intervention of the book as you see it. So I was wondering, uh, what would you want the readers to take away from this book as a larger take-home point about aesthetics, questions of the beauty of speech, the category of wonder, or uh, sort of medieval Arabic poetics, more broadly speaking? Uh, what would you want readers to remember as uh, the main intervention of this book in these multiple fields uh, that it's intervening in? I guess, I mean, I would like first and foremost uh, that the readers understand, appreciate that these medieval scholars thought very deeply and carefully about what makes linguistic expression beautiful um, and that they came up with very sophisticated theories of how poetic speech can be moving and pleasurable to the listener. Theories that can explain poetic beauty in general beyond uh, Arabic literature. Um, and I hope scholars outside of Arabic literature, uh, people working on other languages of uh, the Islamicate world, uh, Persian, Turkish, Urdu, Hebrew, 
would also find it useful. Um, but I also hope people working on poetics in general and literary theory would pay attention to what's going on in Arabic because I, I, I think uh, there's a lot of overlap and discussion that uh, that can be had, you know, between uh, cultures and languages. Um, that uh, can be, I think, very fruitful. So as we come to the end of our time, Lara, could you please share with our listeners a bit what you're uh, imagining as uh, the next uh, uh, project, next thing you might be working on? So uh, I was very, uh, I might be taking kind of the same path as I did with this project, starting with philosophy. Um, And I'm very intrigued with the Arabic interpretation of the concept of mimesis. I, the next project will focus on mimesis in Arabic literature and not only limited to poetry and tashbih as I do a little bit in this book, but also expanding it to narrative and try to understand how they conceived of um, the literariness, uh, the literary quality of, of narrative, if, if at all, and whether and how they conceived the relationship between storytelling and uh, the representation of reality. So this is my next project. Arabic Poetics, Aesthetic Experience in Classical Arabic Literature by Professor Lara Herb, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020, just now. Uh, Thank you uh, so much, Lara, for being on the New Books Network for this incredible uh, book, uh, which I should also mention to our listeners, has uh, really uh, concise and nice uh, descriptions of these multiple categories also, uh, in addition to, of course, uh, this riveting analysis that you bring to the table. So thank you so much for this incredible book. Thank you for uh, your time uh, to come on the New Books Network. Uh, uh, I really appreciate it, as I'm sure our listeners will also have really appreciated it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. So this was my conversation with Professor Lara Herb about her wonderful and exceptional new book, Arabic Poetics. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic study.